Hey everyone, welcome back for this week's episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. My name is Emil Shore and I'm joined by my co-host, Tom Schneider, Michael Albaum. And today we're going to be talking about how should you actually calculate cash flow? There's a lot of different formulas out there and we want to clear the air and give you what we believe is the best way to calculate what your projected cash flow should be as you're analyzing a property. So let's get into this episode. All right, guys. So uh, this was actually a topic that I thought would be interesting to cover because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I feel like it's really easy to read case studies and blogs and go on YouTube or on social media. And you'll see people talking about their cash flow and the numbers seem outrageous, right? It's like a property renting for $1,100 and they're talking about $400 of cash flow a month. And obviously, it seems like there's a lot of things missing from the way their their expected cash flow should actually look like. And so, I thought it'd be good for us to to dive into this on this episode. Have you guys seen the same thing? Like a lot of people. Yeah, I have a property that rents for eleven hundred. That cash flows four hundred bucks a month. So this is gonna be interesting. Oh, do you? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys see this a lot? Do you guys like get this kind of feeling like being prevalent out there that a lot of people maybe aren't calculating cash flow the right way? Or just inflate it a little bit to you know feel good about yourself. Sound cool. Yeah. I think it's a bit of an ego thing, yeah. The thing with returns and what I like about this episode is, man, assumptions are just so important. And two people can be looking at the same deal, analyzing it, and come up with completely different returns based on the way that they're calculating these. You know, what's in the sausage factory of those calculations is just so critical. Yep. I agree. I think that that's kind of where deals often get made or broken is in the assumptions. And if you make a bad assumption, you can very easily buy a bad deal. You can just as easily lose out on a good deal. So getting good at making assumptions is huge. But I totally see this regularly where people aren't including the things that I would include in their cash flow calculation to determine what it is. I think it's it's too often too light. Yeah, I agree. I've actually seen examples of this of properties that I've analyzed. Like someone posted on Twitter a property they just purchased. And I remember that exact property and I had underwrote it as well. And my cash on cash was like half of what, you know, they said their cash on cash was going to be. So I've seen it on like on property, like specific properties I've underwritten to. So uh, hopefully this is a good episode for people to just have like a little bit more of like realistic expectations of what their cash flow could look like after they really account for everything and peanut butter spread all the expenses that come up throughout the year. Right, Tom? Jiffy that. Oh, yeah. Jiffy that. <laughs> <laughs> Jiffy on the spot. All right. Let's start out by talking about like, what is the formula? What expenses should you be considering as you're calculating this number? The PITI is an acronym for your principal interest taxes and insurance. And so the principal and interest is just determined by whatever the mortgage looks like, whatever the interest rate, whatever the amortization period is. And then your property taxes, if you are escrowing these, the lender will often pay them for you. And so you pay monthly into this account and you don't have to have this big property tax bill once a year or twice a year. But so I would always call the county assessor to determine what the after sale property tax looks like for an investor. And then obviously divide that number by 12 to get a monthly cash flow amount. And then your insurance I use a very ballpark estimate of 0.8 to 1.2% 
of the purchase price for properties under 150K. And for properties over 150K, you're probably looking closer to one half to 0.8% of the purchase price, one half percent to 0.8% of the purchase price. And so I'll use that number divided by 12 and again, apply that to my monthly cash flow. So you've got your principal interest, taxes, and insurance, and then your property management on top of that. Tom, what are some other expenses that I want to hog the mic here that you would include in your monthly cash flow? Uh, vacancy. So an often assumption used is half of a percent of the annual rent or perhaps a month, depending on what that term time is looking like. Like a more conservative would be doing it a month, but hopefully that would be shorter than that. Another one is within that property management fee, or I guess this would be separate, but they would be managing that process if you're using professional property management, would be turn costs, would be uh, repairs and maintenance costs. And to define the turn costs, that's the cost that you're paying after your tenant moves out and you have to get the property rent ready again. So that's typically more aesthetic stuff, some paint, some carpet, perhaps if there's some older deferred maintenance that was there when the tenant was living there, that it kept kicking down the line, that would be addressing any of those issues. So turn costs. What do you typically budget for your, I'd love to hear what your guys typically budget around turn cost. One million dollars. I've seen this inverse relationship between uh, monthly rent amount of the property and turn cost. So if I've got a $2,500 a month rental, my turn reserve that I'm escrowing is going to be a lot less than a $500 a month apartment. So because I have a bigger security. Do you guys have a separate turn reserve? Yeah. You guys don't just leave it as a repair and maintenance and it kind of just gets lumped in there? I mean, it can. I just am mentally bucketing money for when the turn comes. That's totally independent of the regular repair and maintenance and the regular CapEx that I'm anticipating and also reserving for, like the HVAC, the roof, exterior paint, that kind of stuff. You have a mental escrow account. Yeah, mental escrow account. But also I put it into my calculator. It is a, a separate line item. But yeah, mentally, I'm thinking about like, okay, this money is going towards the eventual turn, the inevitable turn. For a kind of middle of the road rental, I'll put a couple hundred bucks yeah. on it, depending on when the last time that the unit was turned. If you did a big turn at the beginning, your subsequent turns are probably going to be a lot less. And you can also do things on the front end, like tenant-proof properties, put in vinyl flooring, laminate flooring, as opposed to carpet. You never have to worry about that again. You know, maybe tougher cabinets builder grade cabinets you can put in so that they're getting going to get less banged up. So there are things you can do on the front end to make your turn reserves down the road, your turns less expensive. I'm going through a turn right now on, on one of the properties. And thankfully, the property manager would just did their move out inspection and the property's in great shape. So this is going to be a, a fairly inexpensive turn. I think it's like 400 bucks or, or something like that, just to do a kind of a deep cleaning. But in my experience, turn costs have ranged anywhere from 400 to to like 10,000 bucks if there's a lot of deferred maintenance. And where you see those big deferred maintenances, oftentimes if you have a tenant that's been living in the property for a super long time, then stuff builds up over time. Sneaky stuff sneaks up like fences and any kind of like loose decks and stuff like that is the ones that always surprise me that I'm like, dang, that's expensive. So in budgeting, kind of depending on the condition of the home, my kind of down the middle of the line, say we're talking about a 1700 square foot, three bed, two bath, I typically budget around 2000 bucks or something like that for the turn if it's occupied and it's you know been so for 12 months. Wow. $2000 you budget for the return? I mean for the for the turn? I'd say anywhere between 1000 and 2000 bucks. I mean, I don't know, you you don't necessarily and be overly cautious but then optimistic. 
so how at this point how are you even making any money on these with all those assumptions i'm kidding we don't have to get into that but i think the only other one we're missing is utilities so if you're buying a single family home most of the time water and electric are going to be even lawn service all that stuff is going to be covered by the tenant so you don't have a ton of utilities to pay for but if you're buying multifamily a lot of times you as the owner you're on the hook for water heat sometimes depending on where you're buying couple other different things. So I've noticed with multifamily, you have to account for a lot more utility versus single family. The tenant is covering a lot of those. And also depending on how the property is metered, you may not be able to push utilities onto the tenant for multifamily. And a lot of multifamily also have what's called a house meter, which is a common area, usually just electric meter. That's good for common area lights, exterior lights, that kind of thing. And so you'll, as the owner will likely be responsible for that. But so yeah, again, just check how the property is metered. And that'll give you some indication of whether or not you as the owner are going to be paying the utilities, whether or not you're going to submeter it or, or kick some of that expense back to the tenants in the form of a utility bill back uh, or just include it all in the rent. So again, check how it's metered. Yep. Solid. Okay. So I think those are all the different line items. This was interesting to do because you guys have a couple more line items than I do. So that's maybe some homework for me to start being a little more conservative. I thought I was being conservative. Here I am. Looking at you guys like, dang. Looking back at my model, I, I estimate typically like a thousand bucks, not two thousand bucks in that like capex turn cost. But a lot of that is dependent on what I'm seeing like within the inspection, if it's like in pretty good shape. Your point to Tom, how do you ever cash flow on your uh, <laughs> on your property with that turn cost is is right. And so yes, a little bit less overzealous with my yeah, not two thousand, roughly, you know, seven fifty to a thousand bucks is is more where I where I target that turn costs the uh, once the tenant moves out within that cash flow assumptions. And is that inclusive of like capex reserves too for HVAC roof, or is that a separate line item? Two separate line items. So one of them would would be for R and M for costs that I'm incurring while the tenant is in the property. Mm-hmm. So roughly seventy five bucks a month, maybe a hundred bucks a month, and. Hopefully a lot of the months that doesn't happen and you don't do that. But then a separate line item for reserve for capital expenditures. And so is your turn reserve considered CapEx? Yes. Got it. Is that, (laughs) am I thinking about this the same way that you are or what? Go ahead, Michael. Yeah. I mean, I just have a separate, I break it out Mm -hmm. separate. I call it, you know, turn reserve versus CapEx. Mm -hmm. My turn reserve, I expect to spend every year or every tenant turn versus the CapEx is more, I can consider that a ladle going into this bucket. That's going to be a piggy bank to draw on when I need to replace the roof or replace the HVAC. But at the end of the day, I mean, the money is all going into the account anyhow. So I just mentally earmark it for certain purposes. I like it. So just to paraphrase the three buckets that you have within these type of costs is R&M, tenant occupied. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And then one would be turn costs, just bread and butter, cleaning, paint. And then the third one would be more specific for like roof or like, you know, major property system, HVAC. Yeah. Big ticket systems. Yep, exactly. I like it. Nice. Nice. Yeah, you got a lot of very detailed, Michael. I like it. I'm a reformed engineer. I don't have a choice. (laughs) All right. So we've gone over like, what's the formula? What are all the things we consider? We've kind of like sprinkled in some of our assumptions, but maybe we should just go through each line item and give what we think maybe are some good assumptions for people. Would that be helpful? Totally. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So mortgage, I don't think we need to get into. You can go online, use a mortgage calculator, figure out your mortgage payment. That one's pretty, pretty simple. 
Uh, insurance, Michael, I really liked your your kind of formula. I used something pretty close. Can you describe that again? Yeah. So I like to use, and this holds fairly true for properties, 150000 purchase price or less. So I like using 0.8 to 1.2% of the purchase price. So let's just take an example of properties, 100000 On the low end, we're talking $800 a year. On the high end, probably around 1200 And what's going to make the difference on that sliding scale is, one, how conservative, how much insurance are you looking to get? What type of policy? Is it a replacement cost versus actual cash value? Is it a really comprehensive policy or is it named peril? So I am a very conservative person. I come from the insurance industry. I grew up in the insurance industry. So I get a more expensive policy than is available. For that same $100,000 property, you know, my guess is you could go get insurance for 400, 500 bucks annually. It is available, it is out there, but it's probably not going to be the type of coverage that I'm comfortable with. And so to help me sleep at night, I'm going to up the coverages. I'm going to add some additional layers to it. Probably get some additional liability coverage. And so the additional coverages just have additional cost. So for the extra $300 a year or $600 or whatever it is, that's often worth it to me. So I've just over the years in purchasing properties and helping other people purchase properties, that 0.8 to 1.2% of the purchase price tends to be fairly reasonable. And I'm confident that getting that type of coverage, you shouldn't be paying much more than that. That's going to be on the high end, uh, being very conservative. So if that ends up being your biggest expense on the property, you know, of course, we might want to go back and take a second look at things and say, oh, maybe we were too conservative. But I find that typically the $300 that we might be too overly conservative isn't going to push something from a no-go into a go category. There are typically going to be other expenses that are significantly larger as a percentage of the income that we would want to take a second look at and see if we can't refine those a little bit more. So that was a super long-winded rant. hope that answers the question, Emil. No, that was good. That was great. Okay. So that's insurance. Tom, anything you want to add there? Anything you kind of like to use for an assumption that's maybe different from what Michael mentioned? If you look at the Roofstock calculator, really helpful tool. You log in to Roofstock and look at an individual listing, and then you click on financials. Just below that financials tab, you can click on cash flow. You can see kind of a rundown of all these different costs. The Roofstock calculator is pretty handy in that you can see all these assumptions. One thing I like about Michael's example for insurance is he does it as a percentage of the purchase price. It's just kind of general guidance. And a lot of the values in the Roofstock calculator does it a percentage of income. So I think in some cases, a percentage of income makes sense. And in some cases, a percentage of the value makes sense. So just as kind of like an FYI, you can see these assumptions in here and looking at a property that's $110,000, we can see this insurance value is pretty close to Michael's assumption of 0.08% or 0.08%. Oh, oh, 8%? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, where that would be $800. This example is is a little bit less than that at $110,000 home. It was around $600. But within Roofstock's calculation for insurance, they'll actually get a value that a, an insurance company will, will bind against. So um, part of the Roofstock operations team, they'll go out and work with one of our insurance partners. Insurance costs can change based on what kind of deductible you have. So depending on what value you have, it could either the price could go up or down. But that's my two cents is I'll just touch on Roofstock as a platform and their calculator, uh, the value that they have and where where it comes from. Cool. So next one is property tax. I don't think you should estimate anything for this one. I think Michael mentioned 
call the the property assessor. Some cities they have an a like part of their website. You can literally just go put in the value that you're going to be buying at. You can even put in the address, and it'll spit out what the new property tax will be. So this one's probably not one you kind of estimate based on percentages or whatever. This is something it varies from state to state, city to city. You should probably just go figure out what it is for your market so you can accurately estimate it. There's a lot of uh, landmines in trying to calculate property taxes. One of them being, if you're looking at last year's taxes, the current owner might be an owner occupied, so they get a homeowner's exemption. So I would be conservative in that property tax assumption. Cool. All right. So next one is property management. So property management, this one's usually pretty easy to figure out. You know, as you're interviewing different property managers, you find out what their property management fee is, whether it's flat fee or percentage of monthly rent. Like Tom and Michael were talking about, and this isn't something I should I do, but I should be doing in that property management, or you can have it as a different line item, adding it, make sure you add in whatever you think for lease or releasing fee, right? So releasing fee will usually be a smaller percentage than a completely new lease. But factoring in every year that the property manager is going to charge either a release fee or if it's a new tenant, a leasing fee. So adding that up there. Tom, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just specific to Roofstock's calculator that it has or any calculator that you're building, perhaps in Excel. Um, With Roofstock's calculator, it defaults at 8%. I remember something that we wanted to do on the product side was make it like updated dynamically based on picking a property manager. If you use one of Roofstock's preferred property managers to automatically update. But whatever the case is, when you know what that property manager fee is going to be for rent collection, you should update your calculator accordingly. Within Roofstock's calculator, it defaults at 8%, but you should keep that updated. All right, keep it going. Okay, so after property management, we have utilities. And so for utilities, for anything two units plus, I use $1,000 per year per unit. So if I'm looking at let's say a four unit building and I want to figure out monthly, it's just a thousand dollars times four. So that 4,000 then I divided by 12 to find the monthly for single family. I don't have a more cookie cutter approach. Again, it's, it's a lot of the times utility is going to be covered by the tenant, but sometimes depending on some cities, like I own a property in St. Louis, a single family home in St. Louis, the water bill and the sewer bill are separate. Whereas most other cities, it's all on one bill. And so the tenant pays the water bill but the sewer bill comes to me as the owner. So that's something I have to factor in as part of my utilities. What about you guys? Any kind of formula you use to estimate utilities? I think on every lease that I have, the, the tenant pays for utilities. So I don't even have that in my, in my model. I guess it's more common with multifamily and, and bigger stuff, but um, utility isn't even something that I'll have. Perhaps during the turn, you know, I might spend like $10 or, or whatnot just during the turn time where the utilities will be on me as the landlord. But for the most part, yeah, I don't even consider that uh, in my cash flow. I was going to say for me, for multifamily, it's it's similar. I think a thousand bucks a year per unit is fairly reasonable depending on what utilities are being paid by the owner. And usually the listing will say owner paid heat and water or whatever. And that you can give, get pretty good insight into all tenant paid utilities. Okay, that's going to be a whole lot less than a grand a unit a year. Like 12 months of expense, prior expenses from the seller. And so you can kind of see like how much are they paying for all these different expenses and see if it lines up with what you have and if you need to adjust up or down. But as I have no information, I just put $1,000 a year per unit. Yeah. And I would say, don't hope that you get those T12s. Go demand those in the due diligence. I would say that's something that you're going to really need to get a handle on before you close the property because you could find out that you were way off on your estimate and really buy yourself an alligator. (laughs) 
as our good friend Michael Zuber likes to call it. Absolutely. Uh, next one is repair and maintenance and CapEx. Some people separate those out. Most people separate them out. I have them as one item now. And for multifamily, I'm using $100 a month per unit is what I do for repair and maintenance and CapEx just kind of all together. For single family, I've usually used $125, $150 per month on single family is the amount I've used for repair and maintenance and CapEx as one line item. How about you guys? Like Tom, for my repair and maintenance, I break it out into those three that we talked about. So for repair and maintenance, I'll use $75-$200 a month depending on the property size and location and tenant class. So in a milder climate with a good tenant, that's not a massive property, I'll use 75 bucks a month, all the way up to the siding scale of 100 bucks a month. And then for CapEx, I really let the inspection report dictate what that looks like. So if you've got that in advance, like on a rootstock property, you can get a decent handle on what that might look like versus just looking at the photos or plugging something in. For a run-of-the-mill single-family home that seems to be in decent shape, 750 bucks a year, between 750 to 1000 bucks a year for CapEx, usually should do it. That's, you know, in three years' time, you'll have $2,000 plus set aside. Uh, and also, depending on if I'm going to get a home warranty or not for that property is going to also determine what type of CapEx budget I'm looking at. CapEx is kind of one of those tough ones too, because it's a bit of a living, breathing, moving target. If I just replace the HVAC this year, well, now I'm going to put less money set aside for that HVAC going forward because I know I got another 10 to 15 years out of it. So depending on the life of the systems, I call it, and the property will dictate what that budget, what that number should be. Ditto to Michael. And I like that concept of kind of trade-off, you know, you might not, what you might be spending more on one year on the turn or, or CapEx, you know, major property systems, that's going to take away for future costs related to, to R&M. So similar to Michael and structuring that. And if you really wanted to geek out and get really sophisticated on building a crystal ball to estimate some variables that we used when I was working at one of the REIT, the vintage of the property was the size of the property, just because oftentimes these costs, especially on the turn, are directly related to how big the property is and square footage. And perhaps certain vintage you might expect more or less on those turn costs. Those are some important variables to, to consider. The one thing I would say on vintage is just look to find out what's been done on the property. I've got a, a fourplex that was built in like 1892. And we did a total gut rehab on it down at the studs. So we put in brand new electrical, brand new plumbing, brand new roof. I mean, everything is brand new. So the year of construction is 1892. So if someone pulled a tax record, that's what they would see. But as far as the insurance is concerned, the effective year of construction is 2019. So I would say, you know, with a take it with a grain of salt, look just a little bit beyond the year of construction to determine, okay, what was done. Absolutely. If something was built in the 50s, it's going to have more maintenance than something that was built in the 2000s. Uh, but if that 1950s has all new electrical plumbing, I would say they might be comparable or that might could even be more updated. Before we run out of time, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, uh, more multifamily dudes on like ancillary, ancillary income, like perhaps having a laundry machine or having like storage sales. How do you guys underwrite that when you're thinking about cash flow on uh, your multifamily? Because there's also the costs of like upkeeping those type of amenities. Absolutely. So for me, I'll just jump in here before I got to hop off. It's something that I think about and will calculate if it's like a reasonable assumption. And so for me, I just have laundry, the vast majority of my multifamily on-site coin laundry. It's not a big moneymaker by any means. I mean, 15 to 20 bucks a month, maybe. Uh, but there's costs associated. Yeah, more amenity. Yeah. So there, there's costs associated with that too, right? Because I'm paying the water and the electric bill 
for those machines because those are on house meters. So the big ones that I like that I use is storage, additional storage or parking. I know pretty darn sure what I can get for those on a monthly basis, just for rent comps, talking to property managers. And also it has zero expense. So those are ones that I really like adding into the pro forma uh, or using to, to drive value and increase the NOI. For me, I am newer to multifamily, so I don't have like the the confidence Michael does in knowing, okay, we have a garage, we have some spaces, how much we can get for it. So I don't even account for any of that. And laundry, even if you have a bigger building, maybe you account for it, but I haven't been when I'm looking at stuff. I just, those to me are, are extras, but I haven't really been accounting for those as that extra income because like Michael mentioned, they do come with some extra expense as well. So unless it's parking, parking and storage, that's that's on the property, but laundry, it's, you know, you're paying for that as a landlord potentially. Okay. So you guys had mentioned turn that you guys actually have it as a separate line item. And I think we already, we already talked about kind of what you guys set aside for that. So uh, Tom, you mentioned like a thousand dollars every year, every other year. How do you set that turn budget aside? Yeah, I would set it as an annual amount, 750 to a thousand bucks. And again, if the property has been occupied for a long period of time, I would expect that to potentially be a little bit north of that value. But, you know, be happily surprised when you get back and your turn cost is 400 bucks, 300 bucks, and that, that you can roll around in that extra money. Yeah. And, you know, it also, I think it depends on property type, right? With multifamily, you're just going to typically see higher turnover. So you're going to have more turns. Whereas single family, I don't know about you, Tom, but like single family, a lot of my tenants stay really long term. Like I've had, of the four single family homes I've owned over the last couple of years, I've had one turn. The rest of them have stayed, even with rent increases, like single family tenants just seem to stay a lot longer. I totally agree. I mean, I was saying I had a turn right now, but it's like, it's pretty far and few between. Right. I think you're right though. And there are studies around SFR having longer duration and it, it makes sense. I don't modify my cash flow assumptions. I'll still assume, you know, based on whatever's on the lease, like expect the worst that they're going to move out. But generally speaking, you know, like you said, oftentimes be surprised, happily surprised, roll around that extra dough. <laughs> awesome. All right. So then the last one I think we should cover here that we mentioned in the different expenses you should be considering is vacancy. What's funny is for single family, I always do 5%. I feel like that's like the industry standard. But again, if I'm looking at my actual vacancy across my portfolio, it is way below that. I think it's just good to be conservative because I don't know, maybe you're in a city or a, an area where your tenant does leave once a year or whatever that may be. And it kind of equates to 5%. But honestly, I've heard so many people who have single family and they're like, you know, they're good landlords. They have the same tenants for five to 10 years. So your vacancy, it becomes real tiny. Especially, Emil, I think if you are getting in really nice school districts, mm. it's a hassle. Like if you have a rental in a nice school district and you have good tenants with kids, like no reason to move out, you know? Yeah. I think it's an upside to including that in your acquisition strategy a little bit. Yeah, schools. Yeah, totally. So that 5% for single family, for multifamily, I do... Seven and a half, eight percent usually, just depending on where I'm investing in. But I feel like that that's a, a solid level, like seven and a half percent. A lot of these things also, especially as you're learning a new market, every market I think is different and you're estimating these expenses. But I imagine in five to ten years, I'm gonna be much better at like being able to look back at all my expenses for five years and say, okay here's what it actually averaged out to be. And here's how my pro forma should change. So, you know, I think right now it's like, especially in the early goings, you're kind of just taking some different assumptions, either talking to people who are in that market or figuring it out. 
And then I think over time, you're just going to get really good at knowing, all right, my expenses are basically this amount every single year per unit. This is my vacancy over the last five years. So I think just with time, you'll get really, really good at these pro forma. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're setting that budget and thinking about your cash flow, that's goal setting, right? And to be successful and to make money as a real estate investor is to you know spend less and make more. And once you identify those numbers, those are specific values that you're working against. So when you get to the end of the year, it's like, okay, how do we do against these values? And hopefully you beat them. And if you don't, you know reasons why and how to improve upon it. And if you don't beat those value goals, hopefully you, you put enough of a cushion that you can still be fine and then get back at it next year and work with your property manager if you're working with a property manager. So it's fun. Another line item that's really important to consider is your homeowner's association fees. So if you own a property that's in an area where you have to pay those extra fees, they can be pretty significant. So uh, being mindful of that, because that's direct cash, cash in, cash out. Yeah. And like you mentioned, some of them are high and some of them are low. Like I have one property, I only have one property that's in an HOA and it's $21 a month. So as I was looking at it, everything else, I really didn't want a property with an HOA, but at $21, it wasn't really affecting my monthly cash flow. And so, yeah, I went with that. But yeah, be careful. Sometimes they can be $100 plus. So that can really, really, you know, mess with your cash flow numbers. So good call, Tom. Good call out. And kind of back to that exercise of comparing your pro forma assumptions for cash flow to actual, you have some actions that you can do to try to improve them, specifically around shopping for insurance costs. That's something that I need to do right now to revamp the insurance costs. Looking at mortgage rates, interest rates have never been lower, so you can beat those values. And then looking at that trade-off between taking care of items on the turn or just repair or replace. So there's a lot of places that you as an investor in working with your property manager and some of your other partners that you have, there's actionable, item, actionable items to improve on those values. Yep. You know, there's other small things, right? Like if you are again buying, a, let's say a four unit building and you're on the hook for water, installing low flow toilets, right? Not expensive, but over the course of a year, it can add up to some decent savings that probably more than pay for the toilet in the first year. So like there's, you know, little things you can do to also try to decrease your expenses along the way. Yeah. And rent growth versus vacancy, you know? There you go. Have we done a debate on that? Rent growth versus vacancy? We haven't. We should. That's coming up in the pipeline for sure. Yeah. I like that. The question of, you know, do you are you raising rates at the risks of vacancy? Right. I got a feeling I think I know where we're gonna land, but it'll be fun to to switch back and forth on in that debate. Yeah. I also think it, it's depending on what you invest in, I think dictates how you do it. Mm. Right. If you're investing yeah. in something that's valued on cap rate, it makes a lot more sense because it's all based on income versus a home or up to four units based on sales comps, you know, you're less incentivized. Very astute point, Camille. It makes a lot of sense. But we can get into all that in a debate. Yeah. It'll be a good episode. Uh, with that, I think it's probably a good spot for us to end this episode. Thank you again, everyone, for lending us your ears. And we will check you out in next week's episode. Happy investing. Happy investing. <laughs>